for over 10 years, um, the Navy has been very deliberate about making the Navy a, a workplace where uh, people can be their best and bring their best um, and to, to change with those times. We're very strong to recognise that we're an Australian Navy and so it's really important that we reflect the society that um, we're, we're charged to serve um, and protect. We need to identify which aspects of our history and our proud traditions are still serving us well um, and which of those things do we need to challenge uh, and find an alternate way um, you know, to, to succeed and, and, and work effectively together. Commander Lauren Milburn is one of the Royal Australian Navy's culture and communication leaders. Her job requires steel, grit, and a level of self-awareness obtained only through years of training and practice. The Australian Navy has always been conscious of its culture and identity, and efforts to overcome systemic challenges have always been a focus for the organisation. But the Australian Navy has faced scrutiny too, and women especially have faced challenges in their journey through the organisation. Commander Melbourne's challenge, then, is to acknowledge these issues, create an environment that is right for change, and then take action towards sustaining that change until it becomes a culture. I think it's really important to remember that there is no end state. Things are always changing, and so I think culture needs to be responsive to those influences on the outside. And just people's expectations change as well. And I think as the demographic of um, our service changes, um, and as we see greater diversity within Navy, then the expected and required behaviour changes as well. So I think that's my first insight is that um, we'll never kind of crack it, we'll never kind of reach that point. We have to be sort of ever learning and always optimising. So what, what, is that, what does that look like on the ground? When, when you are learning and when you are implementing policies, when you, when you say we've got to make a start somewhere and then we'll iterate as the years go on, what, what, does that, what does that start look like in terms of addressing the problems that currently exist in any organisation? And I guess maybe we should probably talk a little bit about what those problems are too, because we sort of skirted around that point, but we haven't really addressed it directly. Yeah, and I, I guess the approach we take to culture is making sure firstly that we understand culture. Um, culture is one of those words where everyone will have a slightly different understanding or definition of, of the word culture. And so it's it's about understanding, well, what do we mean by that? And we mean, you know, it's the normalised assumptions. So it's the unwritten rules. It's the way we do things around here. And sometimes the way we do things, as you said before, um, we've inherited those historically. And unless we're curious and we're challenging whether or not um, those ways still serve us well, then we'll, we'll be on repeat. You know, we'll, we'll keep doing those things. We're really reliant on efficient and effective teams to achieve our work. And um, within culture, we've actually shifted from the term high performing teams to high functioning teams. And the subtle difference there is that uh, a high performing team, you know, gets great outcomes, um, achieves, achieves their mission, gets the job done, but it might be at the expense of the people in that team. Whereas shifting to a high functioning team approach is that we still achieve results, we still perform, but the team remains functioning. You don't actually damage the members within your team to get the job done. We've been doing a lot of work in Navy uh, in this area because we realised that 
uh, in our systems and our performance management systems, uh, even through you know the ways that we train and reward. Um, perhaps historically, we were really um, task focused and, and focused on um, people's performance and people's potential. Um, and we realised there was like a third dimension missing. And that third dimension is what we're calling social mastery. Really, it's just a combination of the emotional and social intelligence of people and how they bring that um, to their leadership style, um, how they build and maintain their teams. And by adding this third dimension, we're actually asking people to look at how they get their job done, not just getting the job done. Um, so it's a new body of work that we're working on in recognition of that, that teams can perform and get outcomes, but how do we do it in a way that we're not impacting on the well-being of our people and the resilience of our people. I love that idea of high-functioning teams and just reframing that mission focus ever so much to be more people-orientated and less object-orientated um, and building that into leadership training in the terms of social mastery. Um, it's a really interesting aspect. In medicine, we don't get any leadership training. There's nothing in medical school really that is focused towards how do you build a team? How do you work with a team? There's certainly components of it, which is can you work in an allied health context and sort of what your, is your role in that and so forth. But that's it tends to be fairly peripheral. When I think about the officer training that I did in the army, and I'm sure very much it was similar to what you did from a, a Navy point of view, there was an awful lot of leadership component and feedback and team and group feedback around your leadership style. Um, which was integral to that process. Um, and I often think that we, we miss the benefits of that in terms of teaching people how to be socially aware in the way that they're interacting with the team um, within a medical context. But when you look at it from an AV point of view and you're saying, okay, we want to move away from just task orientation towards function for our people, how do you make people more aware of that and how do you make people focus on that more and what skills can you give them? Is that something that's teachable or is that something that needs to come through feedback and experience? fundamentals of emotional and social intelligence are you can develop a person in those areas um, and that's a great thing that's the good news um, you know and uh, you know foundational to that is that sense of self-awareness um, so do you have that ability to understand yourself and understand your emotions and understand your triggers and unpack that unconscious bias and so for many years we actually have been training our, our Navy people in these concepts um, through their leadership training um, and then there's, you know, that, that next step to the self-awareness is, am I able to actually moderate or regulate my behaviour in response to those things? Um, and then there's the, the social dimension of, do I have empathy and can I understand and listen to my people? And then how do I actually manage my relationships? In our approach over the last 10 years, we've, we've taken a combined approach and understanding that to shift organisational culture, firstly, we need to, to work on the leaders because they are really essential part of um, any behaviour change or culture shift. So for a long time, we've actually been quite deliberate about investing in our leaders. And as we learn more, um, we change that what we put into that, that leadership development and we tailor it to each level of leadership, whether you're you know, part of a team or leading a team or, or leading a team of teams. So we're responsive to that.
I think when you're teaching somebody about, you know, what it takes to be socially aware and reactive and then to modulate your own um, response to uh, to that, a, a lot of it, uh, in, in my limited experience, I suppose, com- comes down to having compassion and empathy um, for the people around you. It's, it's the ability to imagine how your actions or your comments or the tone of your voice could be interpreted and how someone's baseline uh, mental state might be interpreting your interactions with them in a way that you don't anticipate or intend. It's sort of like taking yourself out of your own shoes, putting yourself into somebody else's, but doing that all in the space of a couple of seconds while you're also simultaneously having a conversation with them. It sounds really simple, but it's actually really, really difficult. And it's difficult to do routinely and it's difficult to do when you're tired. And I'm always interested in how you build that in people. And I remember that, you know, a lot of the time from an army point of view, it was about putting people in stressful situations and then momentarily taking them out of it to say, how is this stressful interaction uh, or this stressful situation affecting you? And how did it affect you? And then reflecting on that in real time. And so the concept of an after action review was a heavy part of training focus. Whenever we were doing any activities from an officer training point of view in, in the army, it was about immediately after a platoon attack, everyone sits down and everyone talks through not just the tactics of what went on, but what sort of leadership was demonstrated. You know, where were things done well and need to be sustained? Where do things need to be improved? And having that real time feedback um, and that can be quite difficult in workplaces to give. So do you pull people out from a culture point of view to train them and put them under some duress or stress and and give people some of those lessons? Or is that something that, that needs to be integrated into the foundational training and, and that's a, a process that continues but isn't necessarily separate to it? Yeah, I think um, before applying the stress, you need to give people uh, you know a level of development and, and awareness and um, and some skill. As you progress through the ranks, um, we will um, shape that development and that training, you know, to meet some of the challenges that you'll face in terms of whether or not you're leading people or leading a team um, or, or specific to your role. We need to train and develop people in, in certain skill sets and commensurate with their level and, and their responsibilities and roles. We need to build in mechanisms for them to receive that feedback and we um, encourage uh, a coaching approach um, so for our leaders to take a coaching approach in the workplace um, to give that instant feedback and instead of telling people what they've done wrong, asking them the right questions to um, encourage their own self-reflection and their own development. And then, of course, we've got a reward. We've got to reward instances of that effective leadership and put it as part of our performance management system as well. That idea of sort of asking people to reflect as opposed to telling them what they did wrong is a really interesting one because it takes away the value judgment out of the situation. It's not about, I think that you're bad at this. It's about these are some of the effects that occurred as a consequence of that behavior. How are they either positive or negative in this situation? In some ways, that sounds a little bit like you're dodging the hard part of the conversation by saying, well, someone has to take responsibility and say when something's wrong. But Oftentimes, I think in these sorts of discussions, it's too easy to play a blame game. You sort of, you create the victim and you create the perpetrator and and then everyone sort of feels like there's a a nice bow around it. But in reality, a lot of these things are much more complex than that. Um, And the people who are perpetrators can often be victims themselves at certain times and people who are victims can be perpetrators as well. And it's never as simple as one or the other. At least if you go a little bit deeper into the interaction, obviously there's always exceptions to every rule. The hard part about it is, is I guess in an organization which is taking people quite young 
is how do you build those sorts of skills in somebody who's still trying to figure out who they are? Because like I, I, for example, I joined the army when I was 17. I know you joined the Navy when you were 16. Most people become doctors when they're sort of between the ages of 23 and 27 or so, people who are pretty young and then dealing with some fairly substantial risk and some fairly substantial trauma. Um, that can be quite a challenge in and of itself. How, how do you feel about navigating those aspects of it when you're dealing with people who are still trying to develop a sense of individual identity, let alone leadership? Yeah, um, and I reflect on my own journey and I think um, some of those aspects of emotional intelligence, um, you can have those at a young age. Um, but, um, yeah, and I think everybody responds different to pressure and stress and I'm not sure how much um, age comes into that. You know, how much is age alone a, a determination of that? When you were 16 and you were coming into the Navy, what was your experience about the culture at that point in time? You know, like reflecting on it now in the position that you have, you know, what what do you think you were thinking about at that stage or how was it impacting you then? Yeah, I don't think I, I really consciously thought about what I was getting myself into um, <laughs> other than uh, it sounded like a really cool opportunity. Um, yep. I was going to have my degree paid for um, and the job sounded like amazing. Um, so I, I was um, quite an ambitious and driven uh, young person uh, and I think it wasn't until I uh, arrived um, at the Defence Force Academy that I, I kind of suddenly realised that I guess I didn't really fit the, the mould, I guess, in a sense, um, which was a bit daunting in that, um, you know, I was not your traditional military-looking character or someone who you'd expect to join the military. You know, I, was, I guess I was a slight young 16-year-old and I wouldn't say I was particularly athletic. Um, so I think just being in this environment where I was a little bit different to, to many of the people who, who had joined up, um, it does, uh, yeah, I, I guess it kind of knocks your, knocks your sense of who you are a little bit. I remember making some phone calls uh, or we'd, we'd get like at least one phone call a week in the, the first six week period and um, I remember picking up the phone to my mum and dad and there'd be no words coming out there'd just be tears coming out um, so it was it was a bit of an emotional time um, and I guess that was our first exposure as uh, you know newly joined uh, young Navy Army and Air Force officer cadets um, the whole idea was to, to put us under some of that pressure and that stress and to see how we responded and performed and then how we performed as part of a team. So I guess it was quite a unique and new experience. Um, got through it. When you sort of got through that and you were on the other end and you were suddenly on a ship for the first time um, with a, uh, a qualification and a role to do, what, what was that day like when you, you sort of first day on the job after leaving school, going into Navy training, and then suddenly you're in, you're in the workforce in, in that sort of responsibility? What did that feel like? 
Yeah, well, I think there were some moments where I questioned, um, you know, what am I doing? I, I can specifically remember one evening, not long after I received my full qualification, and uh, I was on a warship in the Middle East, um, in the North Arabian Gulf, and uh, I was a ship driver, and my responsibility um, was basically to navigate and, and keep the ship safe for, for the commanding officer, and to keep everyone on board safe and monitor their routines and, and make sure everything was was done safely. Um, and I can remember there's a, there's a small team out of 200 people. Most people are asleep in their beds and expecting us to keep them safe. And the, this particular evening, there was some strange atmospheric effects. And so the radar, which is our, our primary means of um, contact avoidance, not running into things in the nighttime, was giving us some really strange readings. And so we'd get a contact on the radar that looked like we had a, a very large ship or some, some obstruction in the water coming towards us. And it wouldn't be until uh, that, that contact was almost within a, a distance that we could safely avoid it, could we actually identify that it, it wasn't a real contact and it, we weren't going to collide with something else. And so I, I remember standing on the bridge, you know, responsible for this at, at 21 uh, and wondering, you know, why am I here? And, you know, it's a sense of pride. And uh, I joined cornerly, uh, you know, I joined under the recruiting campaign of, uh, I think it was, you'll be wet, cold and homesick, um, you know, but the, but the pride of the fleet is you. And so I guess that's part of what gets you through those moments is, um, is that sense of purpose and that feeling that you belong to something bigger than yourself. That to me sounds incredibly stressful. The idea of like not being able to trust your own equipment, not knowing when you need to wake up someone more senior, potentially for nothing, but potentially for something quite substantial. Um, and just dealing with the the responsibility of knowing when to escalate, when not to escalate, and uh, and wanting to, I guess, make a good impression as well when you're first coming out and you're starting out in that sort of role. Like To me, that's a really interesting situation to find yourself in, but I think it's one that's mirrored for a lot of people in a lot of different industries. You know, like I remember the first time that I was on call as a surgical registrar, and it's, it's a very similar situation in the sense that you don't know when you go to see a trauma that comes in or, or a new patient that comes in, how unwell they are, you know, like you don't have a reference point or a really good reference point for exactly how concerned you should be. Uh, your limitations are fairly severe in terms of what sort of interventions you can do alone. Um, and knowing when to call somebody senior at two o'clock in the morning versus when to let them sleep and it will be okay for four hours or six hours um, is quite a challenging situation to find yourself in. And I'm sure that people who are, are in other industries would have similar examples. But I'm, I'm interested in, in how you navigate that, you know, how, you, how you get yourself into a headspace where you can function under those conditions. Do you think that's in, inherent or a part of training or, or what, what could you point to if people were looking for some guidance? If there's someone about to sit in front of a ship tonight and, and there, there's some abnormal weather on the horizon. Yeah, um, I think um, on that particular deployment, there was something about, you know, I wasn't the best ship driver in the world um, by my, my standards, but the commanding officer, you know, had complete trust in me for some reason. And he, you know, out of all of the, the qualified officers of the watch, the ship drivers, I was the only one he, he trusted would call him if I was out of my depth. Um, and so I, I managed to get the, the midnight watch for quite a few months in a row there, which, which uh, wasn't a lot of fun, but it was nice to have his trust. And so I think, I think really it's about trust and relationships. 
I think I brought that sense of self-awareness and I kind of knew I, I, I was humble about um, my limitations and I, and I knew what my strengths were and I wasn't afraid to put my hand up and say, hey, I'm not really sure here. So I think part of it was who I was. I guess another example um, was, it was actually a bit later on when I was flying. We'd been flying um, a night flight. It was a very long flight. We, we landed on a couple of ships to take on more fuel so that we could stay up for, for quite a few more hours. So I think I've been strapped into the seat of this helicopter for somewhere between six and eight hours uh, by the end. And um, we were out flying, um, out looking for submarines and working with ships uh, in a simulated uh, warfare kind of um, scenario. And right at the end of this very long, quite complicated, quite high pressure um, flight, um, complicated more so by the fact that we were night flying, so we'd, we'd lost a, you know, our visual horizon, so that, that's quite taxing. We got an indication that we may have an engine fire. I remember thinking at this point, uh, this, could this day get any better? And we actually had to go through the, the immediate actions to shut down that engine. And the very next step was for us to actually do an emergency landing in, in our checklist of immediate actions. And we both looked at each other and we're flying over crocodile infested waters on the way into the airfield. And we, we, we made a quick call um, that it seemed like there was no fire. We'd, we'd shut down the, the engine that, that we suspected a fire. Followed all the other checklists, but, but made the decision to continue on for, you know, we could, we could see the runway lights of the airport we were heading for. So um, we, we made that decision and, and landed safely. And it turned out it, it was a false indication. But, you know, that's one of those moments where you really question, Ooh, you know, that was some pretty high pressure stuff. What got us through that? And I think it, it is trust. So it's, it's trust in yourself and trusting that um, or, or knowing yourself and your limitations. I think it's, it's trust in your training and your experience. So trusting that um, we'd practiced, you know, 100 times in a simulator, um, the different immediate actions when something like that happens and we thought about it and gone through different scenarios and practiced that. And then the third thing is trust in your team. And so we trusted um, you know, the other two people in the aircraft as a, as a crew. Um, we trusted each other to discuss the problem quite quickly, um, obviously, because um, uh, in that situation, we didn't have a lot of time to, to debate or think, but we trusted that we could operate and make um, a safe decision under a very high pressure environment. So to me, those, they're, key three key things is that that notion of trust i'm really encouraged by that that story that you gave about your commanding officer on the ship trusting you with the midnight watch and understanding that you would escalate concerns if necessary and that you know notwithstanding the fact that we i think in in leadership settings it's it's often easy to punish the people who are good at their job by giving them more difficult taskings um, because you know that it's going to be done well Putting that to one side, that sort of generational trust um, is quite a powerful thing. When you have someone who's more senior, more experienced, who's willing to say, no, I think, I think you have what it takes and I'm willing to put my reputation on the line uh, in my trust of you. Um, that's, that's hugely motivating. 
and and it can make people perform at, at a much higher level than maybe they even thought that they were capable of performing at and it in, encourages people to work doubly hard to become the expectation Hi everyone, my name's Ed and I'm the producer working alongside Chris on the show. I'd just like to extend a big thanks to anyone who's left a review on Apple Podcasts or is following on Spotify. Reviewing or following is a fantastic way to support the show and helps us reach more people and expand the community. As well, if you're keen to see behind the scenes of the podcast, follow us on Instagram. Search for at the risk equation podcast and be sure to drop us a message to let us know you've joined up as part of the community. Now, back to this week's show. We were talking to um, uh, Natalie Johnson, who uh, is an incredibly impressive human being, and she was talking about her experience about uh, training to become a chopper pilot in the Navy, the first female helicopter pilot in the Navy, an extraordinary achievement. And she was talking about an experience where she had where she just didn't quite live up to her own standards, where she felt like she was doing a night exercise, where she shut down because she was embarrassed by the fact that she'd made a mistake. And then she had to get up in front of the other trainees and talk about that as a part of an after action review. And she was crying during that experience and she found it very difficult to make her words, but she forced herself to continue on and to um, go through the process and to reflect on that in front of everybody, which I think is an extraordinarily um, difficult thing to do at the best of times, let alone when it's immediately after something like that. But the thing that struck me about her story was the fact that she said afterwards, so many people came up to her and said how impressed they were by the fact that she'd been able to do that and, and how impressed they were by the way that she'd conducted herself. And, and it's easy for us, I think, sometimes to think that in these sorts of leadership positions, um, you need to put on an act in order to be respected a certain way, or you need to be seen a certain way in order to be legitimate or somehow have power that you needed to, to do your role. When in fact, so oftentimes, at least in the conversations that I've had with people about this from their own experiences, it's the opposite that's true. It's that people want to see that you're genuine um, in order to put their trust in you. And as a leader, you know, you, you're not you're not trying to be better than anybody. You're just trying to be a coordinator and a person who's being yourself, but focused on everybody else to get the most out of the, out of the team. It's not about putting on a show. Uh, and it's interesting to hear that, that that's a similar reflection that you've come to as well. Yeah, um, and vulnerability, you know, is um, hugely powerful as a leader. And, you know, we try to, to explain and teach that, that, that you know, that's a, it's a crucial ingredient to being able to build that trust with people. And certainly from my own journey, um, and particularly when I first uh, went into the fleet and, and was at sea, um, at the time we, we believed that, to survive and thrive, we should act like men. It took me quite a while um, on my journey of authenticity um, to learn how um, how I could actually be myself and um, how I use my unique strengths and approaches and, and perspectives to do a better job. But it, you know, it took me quite a few years to, to come to that realisation that I could be myself and still be successful. And, and I think you need 
role models, don't you, in order to come to that realization? Like you, you need to have people who are sort of similar to you when you're starting out to prove that it's okay, I can just be like myself. Uh, because that person was sort of similar and it seems to have worked out for them. you know. And that's one of the reasons why it's so important, I think, to have diversity and leadership, just so that there are so many more examples for people coming through about different ways to approach the same job that can be equally effective, but just see different personality types um, um, better. And uh, and I think we're, we're all poorer when we only have one model to work off, because of course, you know, it only works for a very small percentage of people who happen to fit that mold. Um, but I think I think generally speaking, the military in particular is getting a lot better at that. If if you look at the structure of leadership today and the models of leadership today, I think they are unambiguously far far more diverse than they were forty years ago. Um, and I think that's very true in healthcare as well. You know, the people that we see in senior positions now and within different specialties are becoming more diverse. Obviously, there's some very glaring and obvious gaps in that statement, but um, but it's certainly improving as as it should. Um, do you do you see that as a part of your work within culture change within the Navy or within cultural work in the Navy in terms of making sure that diversity and leadership is, is a key component of the organisational structure? Yeah, absolutely, Chris. And, um, you know, we uh, we understand the power of diversity and, um, and, and the power of, you know, that of inclusion. So our goal is to create a workplace, an inclusive workplace, where, you know, everyone can bring their whole self and their true self um, and contribute that in a meaningful way. It can be hard though to do that, can't it? You know, because I think that there's there's sort of a bias in um, in promotion in uh, in people moving up through uh, various senior levels of a hierarchy that have nothing to do with organizational policy and they have everything to do with the soft influences. Like the classic example within surgery is, of course, it's a fairly male-dominated field, not uniquely so. Um, by any stretch of the imagination, but historically so. And a lot of that has had to do with perceptions about gender roles um, and the capability of people to do training and also have children and family and taking leave off in order to achieve that and to do that, um, about the nature of training generally occurring at the same time as when people are looking to start up families and the relocation required for training can be quite difficult. And so there's lots of these soft factors at, at play that structurally we've we've had to address within training in order to make sure that we're not only prioritizing diversity but but also actually making it feasible because of course there's there's still many many issues with regards to uh, the feasibility of, of certain positions for different people. And that, of course, gender is only one example of, of that. And I think probably a less relevant example today, thankfully, because we're changing in the broader society ideas of what the norms are of gender roles and, and responsibilities. Um, but that's true of different personalities. It's true of people of different um, sexual orientations. It's true of uh, people who come from different uh, ethnic backgrounds and it's true of people who come from different countries and, and cultural experiences. Um, and that's a pretty complex knot to untie when you're not necessarily dealing just with policy or dealing with the innate structures of certain roles as well. I'm actually really proud of um, how far Navy has come. I, certainly over um, you know the last sort of 27 years that, that I've been in the Navy, um, and it's very deliberate and, and part of the role, part of our role in culture is to understand what are those barriers. And like you say, that there's some of those things are across gender, but as the representation of women increases within Navy, I guess that, that becomes less of a factor. And, and we're actually looking more broadly than, than that too. We're looking at uh, multiple diversity groups and people have different expectations around work-life balance, ways for them to develop their career, 
and so it is about listening to our people today about what are those expectations and and what do people need and then finding ways that we can adjust our systems and processes to cater for that. Navy's getting much better at more flexible work options, so both in terms of flexible arrangements for work, but also flexibility to be jumping in and out of Navy to gain industry experience or for you to come back after a period outside of the Navy. And so there's lots of things in place at the moment to, to meet, I guess, Navy people where they're at today. Yeah, and that takes a lot of work, I think, to, to get those sorts of things in place. You know, it can, it can be quite challenging. Um, uh, allowing for that sort of flexibility. And I don't know whether or not you come across a similar thing, but um, in, in a hospital setting, we tend to be a lot of the time on skeleton staff. If you lose one or two people, the job becomes exponentially more difficult to do. And so it doesn't have a lot of give when it comes to people being sick or people being on holidays or people having flexible work arrangements, particularly if it's unexpected, because you're always sitting on that wire. And there's this interesting tension in medicine where you could say, okay, well, that's an easy problem to solve. We just hire more people. But one of the problems is if you hire more people, then you, you dilute the experience that each one of those individual people get in terms of their role. And so that increases the amount of time it takes to reach a certain capability. So there's a cost to increasing the flexibility of a workplace. And the constant tension is, well, how much flexibility should we have versus how much should we be prioritizing people's experience? And that's really where the, the difficulty comes in because oftentimes it's the people who need the flexibility who actually don't want it because it means that it dilutes their, their capability to become better at their job. And so not only do you have a conflict from a structural point of view with the organization in terms of saying that we need to hire more people, but the people who you're trying to help come back to you and they say, oh, we don't actually want that help. You know, because one in every two or three years, someone really needs it. But for the rest of us, it's not its not helpful. It's actually harmful. And so who do you prioritize? The person one every one, two or three years who needs the flexibility or the people who are doing the job in the in-between times who want to get more experience and become better at their jobs faster. And that's a difficult equation to solve. Do you have similar issues in Navy? Do you come across those sorts of structural issues? Yeah, and, and certainly, you know, over... Uh, Navy's journey, there are times where um, we've had challenges in recruiting enough people to, to meet the, you know, the, the number of ships or the particular um, skill sets. Um, and, and sometimes there's things that are happening outside in industry that means that a job outside of Navy suddenly becomes more attractive than inside of Navy. So, um, you know, the Navy has to be very responsive to those things and, and focus on, well, firstly, you know, how do we get the right people in the door in the first place? But more importantly, and particularly once we've invested in those people, what do we need to do to retain those people? So, you know, we need to understand how do, how do we um, reward and, and motivate and, and keep those people happy? Um, when it comes to those people who are in, um, you know, do they need flexibility or, or not need flexibility? And it's always been a challenge for us um, where our core business is going to sea in ships. And, um, and so, you know, for those who have chosen careers where going to sea is, is, is really critical and we need you at sea and you perform a critical role, um, you know, it, it is um, a responsibility of the organisation to, to find ways to make sure that you're looking after those people and looking after everybody. And we've actually um, putting some new systems in place just, just recently that will actually help people identify those periods in their life across their whole career of where we, we can plan ahead to look at, well, if, if I want to start a family, you know, I'll go to sea for these next few years, but then I'm going to need some time out. But here's my plan to come back and to get myself back back to sea in those critical roles. So we're doing, it's very hard work because, you, you know, 
we're making a system and we're trying to put a person into a system. The other thing I just wanted to, to touch on with you a little bit as well was um, how you feel like you've approached um, this this question uh, of culture differently, having had the experience of left, leaving the Navy for a little while and then coming back to it. Because I think when you're in an organization consistently over a long period of time, in some ways it's easy to sort of fall into the same mental traps that you've always fallen into when when you're you're constantly around a certain number of people who think a certain way in an organization that's structured a certain way it's a little bit different when you take some time out and you look at it from the outside looking in and i was just interested in your thoughts for the few years where you were away from the navy during your career and then coming back to it about whether that changed your perspective and how it changed your perspective if so i think um you know we say this about culture that when you're inside the culture it's sometimes really hard to look at it objectively and so, um, yeah, I, I took a brief break when I wasn't sure what I, I was doing in the Navy and I, I took some leave and, and went and did some um, studies in occupational therapy and actually went and worked with Air Force for a while. And um, I think it does just allow you to, um, you know, kind of get up on the balcony and reflect back on, um, you know, your career and, and some of the behaviour and um, some of the attitudes that you might have had. Um, and it, it gives you a fresh set of eyes. Um, and so it was really valuable for me to, to both look at, at me and my performance as a leader and what I brought to the job uh, and the way that I did that and how I treated people. Um, and then to have that reflection around, well, what, what, um, what would be more effective and, and how might I do that differently and how might I do that more authentically? So I think that, that benefit of, of distance and, and reflection was really powerful. What did it change about the way that you approached things when you came back? Do you, do you think that it, that it was just a question of sort of having a bit of perspective and, and therefore having a little bit more self-confidence and perhaps the ability to reflect on an outsider's perspective? Um, or were there tangible things where you sort of came back and you're like, okay, I, I remember this problem, but I'm going to approach it differently this time? I think um, in that gap, I acquired some new skills as well. Um, and I actually uh, went out and, and did my own coach training and became a coach and I understood the power of curiosity and the power of a coaching style question and uh, and I understood yeah, well I guess I, I could see my own transformation over time and felt that I was in a position where I could inspire and help others um, to do that as well and uh, was fortunate enough to uh, kind of find my way in that culture change space within Navy and so it was really motivating uh, to want to make things better for other people and, and help people with their own individual journeys. Have you had any any particularly positive experiences with that where you've sort of been able to talk to people about, you know, their experiences and their journey and, and positively impact them in a way that you feel um, has, has really tangibly changed their experience of their career as a consequence? I'm just interested in, in whether or not you get that sort of feedback. Yeah, I, I do remember one person that um, I was working with uh, for his leadership development and um, we we're in a very hierarchical organisation. So I think often um, we can constrain our thinking and our, our sense of self um, based on rank. So if I'm a, a lower rank than you, you know, that can have an impact on our confidence level or 
Um, and so I know that he was having particular challenges at work in, in feeling as though uh, he was the expert. And when people more senior to him, you know, would come into the room, he'd stand at the back of the room. And so it was just about him um, removing that his own interference around who he was and, and what he knew and um, that he actually owned the expertise. And, and so it was just through a, a process of questioning and exploring his own thinking and understanding his own thinking that he could uh, unlock that and, and actually step up and, and realise his potential. Isn't it interesting how those unconscious biases or those unconscious barriers can be so real for people? It's, it's like it's in some ways that's just a reframing of someone's sense of who they are within a team. And that suddenly opens up all of these opportunities and these avenues that weren't previously opened up to him. But really, it's just a different way of thinking about yourself and your role. Um, and it's as simple as that, but in some ways it's probably better to say it's as complicated as that. Because of course for that person sitting in the room surrounded by hierarchy, those unconscious barriers are just as powerful as physical barriers. When you're like, I'm lower ranked in the room, even though I know this subject matter really, really well, I don't want to speak up because someone might think that I'm being insubordinate or disrespectful, um, or that they're going to think less of me for interrupting them, or I don't know when the appropriate time is for me to interrupt a senior commanding officer. Um, even though I know the answer to this question that is being posed and I can solve this problem for them really easily. It's, it's, it's about giving them the permission, I suppose, to navigate that situation in a more effective way. Um, and we underestimate how powerful those soft forces can be in people's heads and also how much of an organizational impact they can have. Because the difference between that person putting up their hand and saying, boss, I have an answer to that and, and this is my expertise and my subject area and someone sitting there quietly realizing that there's a problem but not feeling like they can help solve it um, can be huge. In some in some cases, it can be life changing, you know, and um, it's amazing uh, to me that we sometimes underestimate the power of that. Yeah, and and I think um, we underestimate the power of role modelling, and it's something we've talked about tonight already. I've had a couple of opportunities where I've been able to be that person, and afterwards, you know, you, you realise the significant impact of that. So, you know, recently um, my family and I were posted to the Federated States of Micronesia and, um, you know, just being a, a female um, in a, a reasonably senior Navy position, um, working, you know, alongside their national government and, you know, just the impact that you can have just just by that role modelling or, or showing that women can do these roles and be, you know, um, be as professional and, and capable as uh, the men or, or, you know, the people who normally would, would alternatively fill the roles. And so just that unknowing capacity to inspire and motivate others um, just through that role modelling process was, was really rewarding. And taking it down to an individual level, if, if you're someone who's, you know, potentially about to enter uh, a high-risk job, you're feeling a little bit out of your depth, um, you're going to be put under a degree of pressure that you're not used to being put under, and you're trying to build competency and to get to the position where you feel comfortable with that. What advice do you have for that person who's, you know, starting out? Like, for example, someone who's starting out as a surgical registrar, or someone who's starting out as a uh, a watchmaster on a ship, you know, or someone who's starting out their officer training in the air force and they're about to hop into the pilot seat for the first time. You know, what, what's your advice to that individual? Yeah, um, my advice is um, to understand your why. 
you know, what, what are your values? What motivates you? What's really important to you? Because I think it's, it's that connection with, with your values and who you are and that, that sense of self-awareness. So if you can stay well connected with that and you're open to feedback, then I think that stands you in good stead for whatever challenge that you're gonna put yourself into. If you know who you are, what you're capable of, um, and, and you trust yourself, um, I think that's gonna help. Well, thank you very much, Commander Milburn, for your time. I so appreciate you joining the show and to talking, talking to us about your experience in the Navy and outside of it. Um, I know people listening will be really appreciative of your time as well. Um, and, uh, and thank you. And, and hopefully we have a chance to, to revisit these, these topics in the future with um, uh, the success that I'm sure is to come uh, evident and on show. Thanks, Chris. The Risk Equation podcast is hosted by Dr. Chris McGuire and is edited and produced by myself, Ed Gooden. To learn more about the show, follow us on Instagram. And if you enjoyed this week's episode, please feel free to leave a rating and a review. Thanks again for listening.